Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So we have to start. One thing we have to say about here is so we've got a shopping cart here, but I, I think we might be different about this, too. Yeah. Um, I actually like the, the semi-cart, the demi-cart. Highland Park does not have those, but you know, like you go to Whole Foods and there's that half cart. Yeah, you look, Betsy Kaplan likes that cart. I like this, too. Because you feel like you've got... You can limit what you know. Like this is not going to like take over your life, right? No, you have the half have, cart. You right. get the big. You need the big cart. Got, gotta have the full cart. The big cart. Gotta yeah. have the full cart. Come on. And I like the one where the kid. Like, see, you got it with yeah, the kids. The kids with, right? Because yeah, that's yeah. where I used to sit. Yeah, this, come is on. A, <laughs> this is part nostalgia. Yeah. Well, that was like five years ago. You're you're come over on. that. You're, you don't do no, that anymore. No, come on. But you still. Uh, it's got And and this is the coolest place. To put your you're listening to a special Colin McEnroe show episode on grocery stores. I'm Betsy Kaplan. We're spending the first part of our show at Highland Park Market in Farmington, thanks to store manager Brian Gibbons. So far, you've been listening to Colin and Chris Prosperi, chef-owner of Metro B Restaurant in Simsbury, argue about the ideal shopping cart. Don't go away. It gets better. They'll talk about the psychology of supermarket design and how supermarkets have evolved since they were used as a weapon of war and diplomacy in World War II. We'll talk about that in our final segment. I'll come in now and again to fill in some gaps. See, I don't cook. Do you? Well, see, you cook. You shop a lot in, in farmers markets. Yeah. When I was, when we're doing this Sunday, we bought everything in one-stop shopping. Yeah. Because that's how Americans right. do it, right? It's one stop. You right. want? I mean, I love farmers markets too, but I understand the whole supermarket theory because you got to stop your car like four times. Now you have farmers markets, but yeah. what about when it was farm stands? That's where the corn is. Three miles down the road, right. it's tomatoes. Yeah. And you know, if you want a cucumber, it's another quarter mile. And the supermarkets are all here for you. Right, and no, it's, and it's and it's pleasing to look at too. And someone has, you know, someone has chopped up little chunks of pineapple for you, really fresh. And and also you got to remember too, in markets like this one, they'll buy local. So right. oh, you're yeah. getting it yeah. to farmers market. Their farmers are bringing sure. it to the farmers market, but farmers bring also to supermarkets. Right. All the farms I buy from sell to markets. So do you not like to start in the first? Today, stores like Amazon, Walmart, and Whole Foods are all competing for your food dollars by offering conveniences beyond one-stop food shopping. For example, this year Amazon opened eight Amazon Go grocery stores that offer cashier-free checkout. They use overhead cameras, sensors, and what they call just walkout technology to track what you take, just in case you think no one is watching. They hope to open about 3,000 more Amazon Go stores in the next few years. Whole Foods allows you to pick up online orders you can place before you arrive at the store. You save more time by having someone else collect the items that you want to buy. Walmart and Target have grocery stores inside superstores where you can already buy just about everything else you need. It's kind of like enhanced one-stop shopping. And Stop and Shop's Peapod online service and home delivery brings buying food down to zero-stop shopping. Despite the effort to make grocery shopping more convenient, a 2018 survey by Morning Consult found that a lot of people want to see their food before they buy it. And they like going to the grocery store. The bottom line? Supermarkets try hard to make you like them. Now back to Colin and Chris, who have moved on to meatier topics. So we should say, we're, we're here by the meat counter. Hi. We're in people's way, too. Uh, and, yeah. and so 
And so meat counters are different now. I mean, for example, we got a lot of Bell and Evans chickens here that you know, raised without antibiotics, all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit different. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just... It, a lot of pre-prepared meat stuff. And we're coming back to the no package, yeah, right? Remember, right, right. so this is how it started, yeah. correct? Right? When you used to go to the butcher market or the market that had the butcher in it, everything was in a counter behind glass or even just out, where, right? Just on refrigeration on the bottom. And you're like, I'd like some pork chops. And they would actually cut the pork chops for you. Yeah. So we're right. going back to that yeah, now. Right, yeah. Like like 10, 15 years ago, that would already be prepackaged. Yeah. Right, two in a package, and you'd be like, okay, I'll take two right. packages. Right, and yeah, actually, one of the things we learned from one of the other interviews we did was, at a certain point, they were breeding chickens so that cut up, they would look good under a piece of plastic wrap and stuff. The whole thing was sort of, you know, so how do we feel about these things over here where they're already kind of making the roast for you, or the, so they got the little craisins on top, or whatever those things are, and we've got some kind of, what is that there? That's like a... Asparagus, cheese, and sun-dried tomatoes rolled in a pork loin. loin. Stuffed pork loin. So I guess, how much work do you want to do? How much work is it to you? To me, this is to me like this is this is what I can do. That's right. Right. So I wouldn't do. But but I totally understand. This because buy this, stick it in the oven, you're done. Yeah. Right. But also notice that this would be the same cut as these. Right. So this isn't free. Right. Right. So yeah, any yeah, work yeah. that they do on right. the food is going to cost you a little bit more. So, little bit. so you have to balance the budget versus right. So you could do a very similar thing. So this is a, a pork roast with cranberries and it looks like a little orange marmalade on top. Um, so the question is for the pork, the boneless loin pork chops. If you took four of those, laid them out on a on a sheet pan, right. and bought some cranberries and right. some marmalade, oh, sprinkled yeah. it on top, you basically have the same thing, and you're sale shopping. Right. Two ninety nine versus four ninety nine. Right. Right. So it's double or almost double. Yeah. So again, it's all you know. It depends yeah. on your mood and what how much time you have to put dinner on the table. Right. So I mean, all that plays. The coolest thing is we have choice now. Yeah. Before we didn't have choice. Now look at it all. Butcher shops used to be the only place you could buy meat before the rise of chain grocery stores in the early twentieth century. They knocked the neighborhood butcher out of business by offering a variety of prepackaged meats that came in blood-soaked foam trays covered in plastic wrap. A lot of the big chains still package their meats this way. The low price and convenience are still hard to beat. But a lot of smaller grocers, like here at Highland Park, are bringing the butcher back. You can ask for fresh-cut meat from butchers whose blood-spattered aprons make you wonder if they just killed your dinner on the grass behind the store. As Chris noted, Carnivores more interested in convenience can get hot meat meals already cut and prepared with sauces and stuffings that cut preparation to the time it takes to bake them in the oven. The choice is yours. A supermarket is a place where somebody has gone to a lot of trouble to make you happy. Now, they've just remodeled this thing and done it in this kind of faux colonial style, I think. But, I mean, the... From the produce, which is this dazzling burst of color as you watch through the door, to all the way the meats are laid out, to all the shelving that's done here. And somebody is, they're trying to make you happy. To the music they're playing the music above our head. Playing, yeah. I mean, it's an environment where people have gone to a lot of trouble to make you feel better. Which, there aren't that many places like that. I mean, they want you to buy a whole bunch of crap, too. There's but a science behind it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're not, this is not, you know, the Dominican fryer. Chris is right. There's a psychology to supermarket design. The goal is to get us to want to buy more products. Ever notice the freshest foods are the first items you see when you enter a store? The produce is just the right color of ripe, the flowers are fresh, and the smell of fresh bread and rotisserie chicken hit us smack in the amygdala. 
part of the brain that triggers emotions and memories of, say, a former family feast. The sensations make us happy and hungry, and that's the point. You may have come in for a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk, but now your brain has convinced you how nice it would be to also get that juicy-looking apple. Grocery stores strategically place the items you're most likely to need far from the entrance and on brightly lit aisles that shelve a seemingly endless selection of products. The placement of those products is based on economics. Companies pay a premium to have their product placed at your eye level or at the ends of aisles. These end caps are used to signal to us products that are important. And we mentally take note of that, even if we don't consciously realize it. Oh, by the way, if you find yourself browsing an extra aisle so you can listen to a song playing overhead, you're more likely to buy more than you need. So you know who owns the biggest market share by looking down the aisle and seeing who has eye level, so set third shelf up, and who has the most length. Yeah. So it's not so much eye, so it's not so much placement eye level as is is how many across. So you can see who wins over here. This is a Pepsi, Pepsi store. Pepsi, yeah. Pepsi's yeah, this is a Pepsi store. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're in a Pepsi neighborhood. Yeah. Um, wow, that is dramatic, actually. Right? That, yeah. But, but do you, the, it's made to not notice, which right. is the funniest thing, right? Yeah. So this is done to, to not say, wow, look at all the Pepsi. This is, oh, I'll take a Pepsi, right? right. It's this, the psycholo psychology behind shelf placement is a whole science in itself. Yeah, no, it really is. And, uh, and it's other stuff. I'm sure Pepsi owns Mountain Dew, too. I don't know yes, that perfectly. Yeah, yep. okay. So. You know, I don't even think they do. Oh, there's the Kobe's way down there, I see. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But but that is that is uh, that is done by design. So Pepsi has a deal with this particular store or right. chain of stores that they get a prime spot and they get more width on the shelf okay. than Coca-Cola does. No End way. caps are interesting too, right? Yeah. These are marketing things, right? So right. this is where you'll find that um, the stores will actually go to the um, companies that make the food or the soda or whatever, and they'll say, listen, um, this is the month, so we want X amount of product to put on a special, special sale. So you'll find better deals on end caps, right, because it's yeah. more prominent, and they really want you to buy this stuff. So uh, the, the, the store takes a little hit on the price, and also the producer takes a little bit hit on the price, and it's right all to get more interest in these products. Uh. But, uh, but you have to also look, everything in here is probably Coke. Yeah. Right? This right. is Coke's cool. Because uh, they own Sprite, that we know, right? So, I mean, it's all products that they own, so maybe, yeah. right, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. We know grocery stores try and seduce our senses into wanting more than we need. So my reasoning tells me they probably also use the packaging on the dry products we find along the aisles to keep us wanting more. It's not just in the produce section and the meat section. Think about this. Do you ever buy a product because you like the shape or color of the package? Maybe not intentionally, but science tells us that different colors evoke different emotions. For example, we tend to have more trust in products that come in blue packages. We tend to think products in white packages are cleaner. Green packages remind us of health and the environment. We also tend to think things that come in smaller packages have higher quality. And not by coincidence, you may have also noticed that products you like started coming in smaller packages in recent years. Remember when yogurt used to come in an eight ounce cup? The bot, it's less cereal, they didn't change the price. 
they made the box smaller, yeah. but they didn't. So that you don't see it on the shelf yeah. that they made it, what? Yeah. Like, Colin and I remember when the newspaper, they lost like, what, two inches off it the first time? And, right. right, they kept making the paper a little smaller. She remembers that. Yeah. Yeah, I do. remember that, Jim? Okay. All right, so. Look where the Apple Jacks are, <laughs> and the Lucky Charms, yeah. right? Right, and look what's at eye level, yeah, right? Yeah. Honey Nut Shacks, <laughs> Life cereal, I mean, like they Cheerios. Sort of, they've sort of dispensed with the. I mean, Reese's Puffs, Reese's yep. Puffs. You know, why even pretend it's not candy? Just do a candy time. The package. So package. It's more like a rhythm so, instrument. So package is why someone buys it for the first time, yeah. and then quality and other things play in after. But packaging is why you would try and something in the first place. It probably feels convenient. And in terms of storage, mm -hmm. if you have a small pant yep. pantry, okay. and you want to buy quinoa. Yeah, and yeah. quinoa's messy. Right. If you put it in the bag, it spills. Right. So is it worth an extra, I don't know, dollar to get it in this little shaker versus getting it in the bag, which is probably $3 versus $4? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, probably, yeah, because I always get the stuff all over the place. Do you look at unit pricing? I look at unit pricing a lot. I always look at unit yeah, pricing. Small products can appear less expensive until you look at the unit price. Oh, the spices. You said you look at the, what's it, the bulk price or the, what yeah, the, the unit price. The unit, unit price. price. Yeah. This is when you look at the, we're at the spice yeah. section now. When you look at the unit price, I right. fall it's over <laughs> for a pound of nutmeg. Yeah. <laughs> Whole cloves, it's $14 yeah. for a little, what is it, uh, 1.3 ounces. The pound price is. $578,588. You just can't think about that, though. There's another one. Yeah. What is it? Ground cardamom. cardamom. Yeah. It's $164 a pound. That's more than any. What's that? But you, you won't eat a pound of cardamom in, across your lifespan. So you don't have to worry that it's, you know, you're ever going to. I don't worry about that. I buy spices in three pound well, cups. You, you, it doesn't yeah. cost $164. Okay. Can we do that? Like, can people that aren't chefs do that? Yes. We always give the tip of go to a health food store and buy it, buy a little, you buy little, uh, little ramekins of it, and they sell it by yeah. the ounce. Okay. Yeah. Right, so there are places, health food stores that sell spices or, or spice markets, you know? Like every time I go to New York, there's a place on, I think it's on 2nd Avenue, that is nothing but spices, and you can buy these little packets. Yeah. Well, if the, a good rule would be if the unit cost is higher than pot, you know, you're being overcharged. All right, here it is. Look at this one. I've got the saffron. Um, oh, yeah, the saffron. How That's, much is a pound of saffron? Oh, look at that. Wow. How much is a pound of saffron? Even, I don't even know where the comma goes. That goes right after the 33584 Okay, that is too much to be charging for saffron. <laughs> Yeah. Can I get even, a pound of saffron? A, I bet you Costco has saffron. You get oh. and certainly so, if, you, if you go to some places like, like Cosmo, uh, the um, Indian yes. grocery store, yes, whatever, that's a spice market. You, you go yeah. there and the, the spices, packets. yeah, and the spices are, they don't it comes, it comes in a packet. You have to put it in your own little jar, but they're a quarter of the prices. The problem with spices, Look, though, is even this is too much to buy. You need to buy small amounts because, I mean, this is... You know, it's 2.1 ounces, yeah. but that's about, what, a half a cup? Right. How long? I mean, even at home, half a cup of peppercorns, that would take me 40 years to yeah. use. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing with it? Right. right. You want to buy the littlest amount you can. Here's a discerning shopper. You can interview her. You're listening to a special episode of The Colin McEnroe Show at Highland Park Market in Farmington as part of our show on supermarkets. We're going to take a short break and be right back.
You're listening to a special episode of The Colin McEnroe Show at Highland Park Market in Farmington as part of our show on supermarkets. You've been listening to Colin and Chris Prosperi, chef-owner of Metro B Restaurant in Simsbury. I'm Betsy Kaplan. Now back to Chris and Colin. Okay, so mustard pickles. So here's, here's okay. a question as I'm going through here. Right. So who decides what we eat? Mm-hmm. Do we decide what we eat? Do supermarkets decide what we eat? Or do food producers decide what we eat? So the, and it's always been a tricky question to me because we decide because if I'm standing in front of some olives, if I buy this, they're going to restock it and other people buy it and they're going to be like, oh, it's a proper item. If it sits here, I don't think it matters how much the company pays the supermarket to be on the shelf. Yeah. If it doesn't sell, they're going to get rid of it. And now with companies going together, right? So you have Coca-Cola, they own almost every soft drink out there plus waters plus plus teas right. plus everything so it's not even it's not even just a producer oh you they make this one thing one producer can make hundreds if not thousands of things i want to see what this is they're they're selling heirloom pickles see everywhere in the world is yeah. is brooklyn now basically this is called occupied pickle czech sweet and sour heirloom czech is in czechoslovakia sweet and sour heirloom pickle yeah. That's why I love shopping in like Highland Park yeah. and these kind of markets right. because the big stores, right, the Walmarts, the Stop and Shops, the, the big mammoth stores, and that, it drives me insane. They all have the same food. Right. They have the same brands, the same thing. And sometimes it bores me because like when I'm doing these menu planning things, you, you really know what you've got. Right? Yeah. There's no surprises. But when you go to a store like this. This is called the Backyard Food Company. They're yeah. up here too. Yeah. And I, yeah. They probably can't get into the big stores. But, right? but it's interesting to find new things. Yeah. I'm excited by finding new products. You don't see them that often in the big stores because it's it's a tighter, they have tighter control. Oh, yeah. You can't go up against Big Pickle. No. <laughs> and here's Big Pickle, right? The big Pickle. You can see, Blasted. again, remember, they get that bird, that so, bird will kill you. It's not always the height of the yeah. shelf, but it is always oh, yeah. the length of the shelf. Yeah, yeah. And Vlasic owns Oh, look at, look, look at Vlasic. And they own the next right. shelf, too. And the next too. shelf down and, and a little bit shelf. on the bottom. <laughs> Bow and, down. And they probably own a couple other brands. It's Bow down to the Vlasic bird. I don't know what kind of bird is that. I don't know. It was a stork, remember? It used yeah. to deliver the mustard. Yeah. <laughs> don't you remember? No, the, I don't, don't, I don't remember think that's the, right. I think that's a Vlasic commercial. See, these guys are trying to figure out stuff, too. And then there's something called co-packing and private labeling. Co-packing is when a company that makes, say, a tomato sauce pays someone else to package their sauce. Private labeling is when, say, that same company makes a sauce sold under a specific store's brand, like 365 for Whole Foods or Nature's Promise for Stop and Shop. It gets complicated, and Chris has more to say about it. Listen close. You'll hear him mention Gino's sauce. Yep, he's talking about Connecticut's favorite women's basketball coach. He has his own tomato sauce. So tomato sauce too, yeah. right? Tomato sauce is one of those things. Also, you have to be, you have to be more careful with tomato sauce than anything else, because you don't know. So I tell Gino, this, yeah, Gino and, and I know where Gino doesn't have a Gino doesn't have a big pot on his stove. <laughs> his sauce is made in a big plant in well, not a big plant, a medium-sized plant in New Haven, Connecticut, called called Ultimate Foods. As is, if we, yeah, as is Frank's down there. Wow. Frank's, if you remember, was a restaurant yeah. in Hartford. Italian restaurant, and he still makes sauce, and he makes it. He makes his sauce still at the same place yeah. in New Haven. And Frank's is a decent sauce. So this is called uh, co-packing. 
Okay. So this, in other words, Frank, Gino had a sauce recipe. They went down to this company called Ultimate Foods and Ultimate and said, hey, I have this sauce. Can you make it? They tested, they tweak it a little to make sure it can get in the, in the bottle or the can or whatever. And then they're like, okay, we're off and running. You have to distribute it. They do that. Then there's a thing called private labeling. That's a little trickier. I went to this store or this plant, which is a city block long in New York. Right, and they were bottling a Victoria? yeah Victoria. They were bottling a um, tomato vodka sauce, right? And every I'm going to say ten minutes, the line stopped. The bottling line stopped. Ear shattering bottles knocking against each other. So finally, at the fourth time, I asked the owner. He was giving us a tour. What's going on? And he said, Oh, let me show you. So he brings me over to where the label and the top goes on. And he goes, This sauce is is la private labeled under nine different labels. Prices running from three ninety nine to nine ninety nine. So you have to be so. And it's and it's it's hard to tell here because they don't have a huge supply. But look at the bot. Just like with that, look at the lids and the type of bottle, you'll be able to see which ones are the same sauces. We know Gino is co-packed. Victoria has a bunch of private labels. One of Victoria's private labels is Stop and Shop. Oh. And what it, it, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Nature's Promise, not Natural's Pro Nature's oh, Promise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Nature's, Nature's Promise, Promise yeah. is 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 a Victoria brand. Huh. And you can also say because see how it says this is the other thing to see. It says um, okay, so this one actually says made manufactured by Honor Free or Ultimate Foods LLC. What you want to look for is when it says. Let's see, Frank's. So Frank says something about Bibleicious, Bibleicious over yes. here. Yes. So, but but a lot of so it'll have that, or it'll say made for. Uh huh. Right, made for Frank sauce. Mm -hmm. Oh, Newman's own. No, no, because they're big enough to have. Let's see what they're big enough to just have their name. By law, it has to have either your name or your packer's name on it. Yeah, this one has their name. See, I just did picture yeah. Gino showing up at the tomato sauce plant, and he's yelling at the guys. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, go faster totally. than that. Oh, Give no. me 20. Oh, What's no, wrong no, with you? Faster, and they're all like crying. He'll be there mm -hmm. at the end of when the vat is done, when yeah. the sauce is cooked. Gino will be there, or someone from Gino's organization will be there to taste it before it goes in the bottle to make sure it's Whoa. right. Yeah. yeah. We can smell a little rotisserie chicken, I think. Something. So I just, well, I walked through a little pocket of something. How about this? Yes, okay. So. How about this? In 1970, right, or right. maybe 72, I remember my parents had friends visiting up in Goshen, and they were from Japan, and we were grilling corn. And <laughs> the guy's like, oh, you have to try soy sauce on your corn. Mm. On your corn. It's the best thing ever. And my dad was like, okay, I guess. So Goshen, Connecticut, yep. we drove and looked for soy sauce. Right? We made it all the way into Hartford. We couldn't find any stores that had soy sauce until we were finally got the little packets that we stopped at a Chinese store and got a packet. Now look at it. Yeah. We're standing in front of the, you know. And this is Highland Park. This isn't yeah. a superstore. But yeah. still, we got a lot of choices. Yeah. There's soy sauces and what? And uh, sesame oils and sliced ginger and chili peppers, sweet and sour sauce. We already talked a little bit about how Highland Park is offering more prepared meats for people who want a hot meal but don't necessarily want to have to buy and figure out how to use all the ingredients necessary to make the dish they want. Highland Park isn't alone. More grocery stores are adding a wider variety of prepared foods to their inventory, and for good reason. In 2015, for the first time, Americans, especially millennials, spent more on meals prepared away from home than on meals prepared at home. Grocery stores were quick to take advantage. Many of them, like Highland Park, 
are increasing the amount of space allocated to prepared meals, from salads and sandwiches to rotisserie chickens and full-course ready-to-eat or heat dinners. People want to eat meals at home. They just don't want to make them. So here we are in prepared foods. And this is only one slice of prepared foods. Right. This is prepared foods that they've, that, made. That they've made, but that are cold, yeah. ready to reheat. Right. Right. And that's only one type of prepared foods that most supermarkets have, right? So this mm-hmm. is where you start, but there's also prepared foods that are hot, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Do you just want to read some of them? I mean, we, we get your yeah. roast yeah. pork with mashed potatoes, andouille sausage with the red beans and the rice, Swedish meatball stuffed shells. I'm most impressed yeah. Chicken by Francais, them. beef raviolis, apricot glazed chickens, penny a la vodka. I mean, butternut squash roasted. Look, oven roasted vegetables. Mm-hmm. Got your pierogies. See? So even ethnic. Bourbon salmon, chick, right? How about Ooh. this stuff? This stuff. So a few years ago, we did a test, mm-hmm. and we bought... Like, I don't know, 20 different kinds. We're looking, of at, one fro- we're looking at frozen manicotti, beef yeah. ravioli. And, and, pro- and, and basically frozen foods. Oh, yeah. Like frozen prepared meals ready to go. You just have to reheat them. Like the, the um, healthy choice, the lean cuisines. Yeah. I'm telling you, some of them are not bad. And they're not awful. They're good for you. And, right? It's, I guess you have to look at things for what they are, right? right. Just because it's a frozen food uh, uh, and pre-made doesn't mean it's bad, mm-hmm. right? Some of the stuff you really have to look through that are pretty good. As we get closer to the end of this aisle, we'll find even there's organics in this frozen prepared oh, meal yeah. section yeah. now. There's a person in my house who likes these things. And actually, yeah. also for my son, who's a single guy, yeah. you know, I'd rather, I mean, I will come into this very supermarket because he lives across the street and buy him a whole bunch of stuff and then I know he's eating that instead yeah. of crap. Is there a supermarket now on the planet Earth that doesn't have sushi? Yeah, like every is- supermarket I go into has sushi now. Yeah. Either they're making it themselves or uh, there's a sushi bar nearby yeah. making it, right? Yeah. She's here, making here it, they're yeah. making it themselves. Yeah, yeah. 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 she's making it. Yeah. So should I, actually, I might have to go to the Carolyn Bean story. So Carolyn, okay. this is back when, before Carolyn had a permanent guy in her life. She used to say that she would, uh, uh, hang around the, the hot bar at Whole Foods because she goes, you know, any guy who's buying like the pre-made hot macaroni and cheese, like, she goes, she goes, you know, single. he's got nobody to come. Yep, he's single. single. Nobody, yep, yep. Definitely not, not a married home. guy. Not going yep. home to anybody. Yep. So, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the only reason I, she told it on the air before. I have to so rethink I feel like going to that now and buying food <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about these. I feel like this is a great invention. The best thing that's ever happened in supermarket. Yes, we're the standing, rotisserie chicken. Yeah, we're standing in front of the rotisserie chicken because this to me isn't just, oh, I want to have chicken for dinner, mm-hmm. right, as is. Like, we're putting this on a platter and sli- and carving it up for the family. This is like, I want to have chicken in my pasta tomorrow. I want to have yeah. chicken, right? I want to make chicken uh, pierogies. Yeah. Whatever you want to do with chicken. Why buy a chicken and cook it when you can buy an already cooked chicken? And you can see the rotisserie's right next door, yeah. right? And it was rolling five minutes ago and with there's some guy named chickens. Alan Alan's classic look yep. at that Alan's classic <laughs> yeah no I love the I'm, I don't think I've had theirs but yep. so for eight bucks if you get the Alan's classic you're you know the centerpiece of your meal is done you're just adding vegetables mm-hmm. and it, the crazy part is do you want to go back and look what a whole chicken cost yes yeah, it's, it's it's pretty close yeah, if five not or a, six, six, maybe six bucks for the that's whole what chicken. I'm saying it's not yeah yeah no they, and, they're doing a lot of work for you and you don't have to do anything a and you know it's all the, it's cooked all the way yeah. it's seasoned right yeah. I totally support that idea yep. 
Okay. This is by far what excites me about supermarkets today more than every anything, anything. Because 20 years ago, most supermarkets got rid of all this, right? Yeah. They went mm -hmm. to prepackaged everything. They didn't make anything anymore. And now most supermarkets have full kitchens in them with chefs preparing food every day. Yeah. And, they, and then they have real bakeries, real bakers. Their desserts, when I walked in earlier, I was blown out of the water. The fresh fruit tarts, the yeah. chocolate tarts. You know what I kind of like is that they get the soups there. They must be dishing up the soups from there, yeah. which is behind plexiglass. Mm -hmm. So yep. you don't get some drooling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some now, guy's like sticking his nose over the soup or something like that. I'm, no, I'm worried about the Carolyn Payne story now because I can be found <laughs> at my local grocery store at the salad bar but or at Whole no, Foods, but yeah, too. I think that's a little different. The salad I, I, bar is like my go-to. People are watching me now. You're just a lonely <laughs> yeah. guy? I'm just, look, there's a lonely guy at the salad bar. <laughs> So this, we're back to the, we're back to what they make in the store right. that you can take home and either eat cold or or heat again. Sesame yeah. garlic steak tips, yeah. Stuff. bourbon Cabbage. bourbon steak tips. I mean, remember like when we were growing up, you go to the deli counter and it was you know a little cap of cola, a little cap of gold. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, so the few things. Yeah. And pre-made salads ready to go too. So you just grab a couple. I mean, and this is fresh ingredients. It's the same produce that you saw when we first walked in. Mm -hmm. I, you know, speaking of that, we didn't say this when we were back in the produce section, but another invention of which I totally approve, even though I'm a guy who goes to a lot of farmer's markets, triple wash spinach and stuff like that, I think is, you know, pop it out of the bag, saute it, whatever, mm -hmm. start eating. I think it's a great concept. Yeah, convenience products in the produce aisle are probably in the number one growing, right? I, there's even riced cauliflower over there. So if you know, yeah. like if you have a recipe for shredded cauliflower, you don't have to buy a whole head and shred it. It's already done for you. There's there's uh, lettuce cut, cabbage cut. Uh, even Jacques Pepin, who's a famous French chef who lives here in Connecticut, he says, I use the supermarket as my sous chef. Right. And that means he goes to the salad bar <laughs> and buys onions, peppers, yeah. celery, carrots already cut up. And then he'll go home and make a stew. He even advocates for that. We spent our last few minutes at Highland Park browsing the just-baked cakes and pies in the bakery, we avoided impulse buying any of the temptations stacked alongside the checkout counters. And we talked to a few people about why they liked grocery shopping in a store instead of online ordering. Like many of them, I also like to go to the grocery store. I like the sights and smells. I like the community of shoppers at my local store. And the sense of well-being and security that comes with that feeling of abundance and what seems on the surface like limitless choice. Chris's final takeaway from our visit to the grocery store on this late afternoon, just before dinner. Never ever go to the supermarket hungry and always have a plan. Even if it's like what I was saying, the circular shopping and, and you're going to make meals, never going hungry and never going without a plan. I took Chris's advice. I wasn't hungry when I got here, but I am now. The supermarket has a way of doing that to you. I'm going home to have dinner. All right. All right. See you guys. Okay. You've been listening to a special episode of the Colin McEnroe Show at Highland Park Market in Farmington as part of our show on supermarkets. Stay tuned for our final segment. Did you know our earliest supermarkets were used as a weapon in World War II? Okay, it was a soft weapon. We'll tell you all about it. Starting off in aisle one, fruits and veggies by the ton. Hey, check it out, Radicchio. These red leaves, man, they almost glow. 
bok choy. I've always wanted to try it. I wonder if I have enough to buy it. It's grown in Japan or maybe China or maybe some farm in South Carolina. Just then I hear a voice in my head. Stay focused, man. Tuna and bread. But right now I'm in produce bliss. So, woo, I'm too high for this. We're talking now to Shane Hamilton, senior lecturer in international business and strategy at the University of York and the author, most recently, of Supermarket USA, Food and Power in the Cold War Farms Race. Shane Hamilton, I, you know, I guess I haven't really thought about this very much. When did there actually come to be supermarkets? So, so tell us, first of all, just how, how did supermarkets come to be? There's actually some debate about what counts as the first supermarket, but many historians agree that uh, they really emerged in the 1930s as a kind of alternate business model contesting the big chain grocery stores, as they were called, so A&P and Kroger, uh, other firms that we're more familiar with now. What made supermarkets distinctive was they sold kind of everything under one roof, Mm -hmm. you know, your milk, your meat, your bread. Some of the original supermarkets even had, you know, you could buy auto tires and it had things like chop suey departments. Whereas the chain store, the A&P, the original chain stores, would much more focus on um, packaged goods, you know, flour, coffee, tea, things like that. So A&P by 1940 is a pretty gigantic thing by any standards, right? They have about a thousand stores? Something like that. And... By the 1940s, 1950s, they were not only the largest operator of supermarkets in the United States, but the largest food retailer in the world. So, and in many respects, there's a sense in which part of the the legend of that moment of the mid-20th century would be, well, this is free enterprise at its best. These are uh, candy entrepreneurs uh, who figured out a terrific way to buy and then sell. Uh, and to do it across a broad spectrum uh, of products. But it's not exactly the case, I gather, that this was something done with no assistance from the government in a pure capitalistic fashion. Tell us more about that. Well, yeah, A&P in the 1940s was under a number of antitrust investigations from the federal government. And the central claim was that they were restricting competition, that they were not allowing free enterprise to work. A&P responded in many ways, uh, including national advertisements and major newspapers saying to consumers, you know, do you really want your A&P put out of business? You know, the argument was that they were providing affordable food, you know, incredible variety in any season to consumers across the country. So how was that not free enterprise? What I explore in the book in many ways is that even if that was true, one of the ways that A&P and other supermarkets made that kind of abundance and that affordability possible for consumers was by instituting pretty strict controls over the agricultural supply chain that made that abundance possible. When you say uh, strict controls, I mean, in, in some ways, this looks like a great model for farmers to sell their goods. You know, they can sell more produce to more people through a system like this one. So what were the kind of militating factors there? They certainly could. You know, one of the things that farmers very much appreciated, and cooperatives as well, cooperatives of farmers, say, with a, a group of apple growers or orange growers, could join together and say, you know, we, we very much appreciate being able to sell to a huge buyer like A&P. They tell us the terms ahead of time. They pay their bills. 
Uh, we appreciate that. But it came at a certain cost, one of which was standardization. So Apple is actually a very good example. In the 1920s, there were hundreds of different varieties of apples that were regularly marketed in national food stores. By the end of the 1920s, as chain stores and eventually supermarkets came to impose demands on farmers for only those apples that looked good on a shelf and later looked good in packaging, farmers planted fewer and fewer varieties, such that we ended up by the mid-20th century, you know, focusing primarily on the red so-called delicious, uh, which many consumers would remember was not particularly delicious, even if it was very red. This is one of the ways in which ultimately... That desire to standardize and to meet a need for standardization created, at least in one smaller sector sector of society, an appetite for the thing that was driven out of existence in the first place, which is variety. Towards the end of the book, you talk uh, about maybe kind of a period, I guess this really starts in the 1950s, where there's maybe a little bit of resistance to the big chains. Well, sure. I mean, the fact that A&P was called before antitrust investigators in the 1940s, you know, indicates that not everyone was, was particularly happy with the supermarket model anyway. In that particular case, A&P did defend itself and it, and it moved on for at least some period of time. But even before that, you know, there was the so-called chain store menace of the 1920s and 30s when many localities, including many southern states, actually passed laws, including quite high taxes, on chain stores, declaring you know these national chains to be a menace to local ways of life, uh, including to farmers' ability to produce a wider variety of goods. But certainly in the 60s and 70s, you see a growing consumer uh, resistance, uh, a movement, if you will, to this idea that supermarkets offered what's often called consumer sovereignty, you know, the power of individual consumers to choose products, and by choosing products, actually dictate to business what they should do. There were a number of hearings held in the 1960s before Congress where consumers, and particularly women, would testify and say, you know, I go into a supermarket and I don't feel there's much choice at all. I feel that the labels on foods are telling me mistruths or they're, they're hiding facts from me. I'm never quite sure what the price is from day to day for any given good. They did not necessarily feel that they were very sovereign. So some of our listeners right now listen to uh, live near and, and shop at something called the Elm City Co-op, which is uh, in New Haven on Chapel Street. But you write about a precursor to the Elm City Co-op. Way before that, there was a New Haven Co-op. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's an example of a wave of cooperative food stores, quite a few of which emerged in the 1930s as kind of a New Deal effort to kind of gain control over the, the consumption and distribution of food. And there was another wave in the 1960s that many people remember, and some of which are still around, affiliated with the more kind of new left movement of, of you know, college students and a youthful rebellion against the plastic industrialized food system. The New Haven one was really very much a, a product of that kind of New Deal moment of trying to create a cooperative in the sense of a consumer-led effort to gain more control over the economic features of their life. It was in business for some time, but it did have difficulties with gaining access to enough goods to be able to keep prices low to keep the customers coming into the store. Uh, since we're telling Connecticut stories, uh, you you do write about a place called Arbor Acres, which, as I recall, was in Glastonbury, uh, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and and was uh, well. Tell us about the chicken of the future. Tell us about tell us the story of Arbor Acres. 
Well, yeah, Arbor Acres is a chicken producing firm that happened to enter into a contest that was actually sponsored by the great A&P in the mid-1940s with the help of a number of federal government agencies looking for what they called the chicken of tomorrow. Originally, it was actually called the, uh, the meat-type chicken contest, but they decided, a group of uh, agricultural scientists decided they needed a catchier name. And what they specifically wanted, according to A&P's original interest in this, was chickens that could be bred to have larger breasts, whiter feathers, so that when the feathers were plucked, the remaining meat would look good under a plastic cover, and chickens that could survive being held in confinement operations without immediately succumbing to disease. So this is actually quite a tremendous advance in genetics, and Arbor Acres was one of the firms that won several prizes in this contest for breeding chickens that could meet those requirements, which, of course, fed into the supermarket system. There's a reason that A&P was very much interested in having the so-called chicken of tomorrow. They wanted to turn chicken, which had been in the 1920s, really a, an expensive meat. You know, it cost as much per pound as lobster did. Turned it by the 1950s into one of the most affordable meats in the American diet. Everything that we're talking about right now, whether we're talking about chickens or apples, is a little bit about how the supermarket distances us from the natural state of things. You know, that increasingly we get an apple that doesn't resemble the apple in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, increasingly we get a chicken that doesn't look too much like the earlier chickens. Instead of getting natural foods, we're getting unnatural foods. And, and we're getting foods that we didn't even really know that we wanted. So what about that? I mean, do you see the supermarket as something that kind of led us into a very artificial relationship with our food? One of the themes that I really emphasize in the book is that, yes, supermarkets exercise a great deal of power in transforming the landscapes of food production. You know, things like the chicken of tomorrow or the red delicious apple uh, are in part a product of supermarket business people's interventions in the kinds of choices that both consumers and farmers would make. But another key theme that I really investigate is that was not solely a product of just businesses operating in some you know, imagined space of free enterprise. There's also a great deal of state investment, of government investment in the science and technology that made that sort of thing happen. The Chicken of Tomorrow contest was initially sponsored by A&P, but much of the scientific work was really supported directly by government scientists and experiment stations and in the land-grant university complex. There's a heavy government role in it as well. Since you're talking about the government, I want to talk about what would be the government's motivation? I mean, you, you, it's right there in the title of your book, in a way, The Cold War Farms Race. Was, that, was it the idea that we were going to be, we were going to triumph by being this land of plenty? Well, originally, the government interest in supporting, you know, an industrial food supply chain emerges from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which, you know, was created in 1862 as a uh, cabinet-level agency devoted to supporting farmers' interests. So the USDA, from the get-go, was meant to help farmers grow two blades of grass where one had been before, as its motto was. So from that premise, you've got a government that's looking for ways to help farmers produce more food, produce more abundance. And that becomes hardwired into the American approach to food. What I'm calling the farms race is that by the mid-20th century, as the Cold War begins heating up after World War II, 
the idea that supermarkets and the abundance of the American food system represent the superiority of American free enterprise over Soviet state socialism takes on a life of its own. I mean, one of the things that surprised me very much in the research for this book was how often I kept running across this idea that American supermarkets and American farms were weapons in the Cold War. And weapons in the sense of almost sort of psychological weapons, a sort of a sense of this is a life we have that you don't have, we're better than you? Yeah, part of it is a, a psychological warfare, if you will, a kind of propagandistic war of words, which both the U.S. and the USSR are engaged in. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev, premier of the Soviet Union, once declared that the, the Soviet Union was going to fire a torpedo against the pillars of capitalism by outproducing American farmers in, in per capita uh, production of milk, meat, and butter. Richard Nixon, a candidate for office, uh, retorted that if it was a, a torpedo that was going to be fired, it was going to be fired by America's farmers and ranchers against communism. So this, this language, this rhetoric of food actually being a weapon is definitely important. The other, also yeah, took concrete ahead. forms because American supermarkets were actually exported around the world to show the system that actually could be constructed materially in other countries to fight communism. Yeah, maybe you could just uh, quickly sketch out Venezuela as one of the examples of this that you give. So we actually uh, were exporting this idea uh, and, and in bricks and mortar form to Venezuela. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah, that came about because Nelson Rockefeller had an interest in Venezuela that he, he forged, particularly during World War II, when he uh, helped serve for the U.S. government trying to keep Venezuela on the American side uh, and prevent Germans from gaining access to their oil and participate in a variety of agricultural development campaigns trying to help build Venezuela's agricultural base. After World War II, Rockefeller was invited to come back to Venezuela and begin building businesses, including a, a chain of supermarkets, to support the Venezuelan uh, food economy. Now, uh, Rockefeller very much saw this effort as an effort to destroy uh, any uh, communist sentimentality in, in that country and perhaps elsewhere in the world. In fact, the, the chain was very successful not only in Venezuela, but then went to a, a number of other Latin American countries and then also was exported to Italy in 1956. And these supermarkets were hugely profitable, and you know, built into them was this idea that they were you know, concrete advertisements for the superiority of the American approach to producing and consuming food. So I think we need to end with the kind of what hath man wrought kind of question about all this. I mean, if you travel, one of the things that you start to see, particularly in Europe, I haven't traveled at all in South America, but is that, you know, in some ways this model is winning at the cost of all kinds of things. You go to European towns, some of those sort of beautiful human-scaled towns are, are being strangled by some of the kind of American-style big box stores that are sitting not too far outside of towns. Have we imposed this way of shopping and eating uh, on the world? And, and is it for good or is there some way of taking back the things that, that maybe make us more connected to our food? You know, I'm a historian, so I don't predict the future, but uh, <laughs> it's clearly the case that people enjoy shopping at supermarkets. I, yes. mean, I enjoy shopping at supermarkets. You know, there's a number of lines from memoirs of people who grew up in, uh, you know, communist Eastern Bloc countries in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s 
that when they first witnessed an American-style supermarket, they were astounded at the abundance on offer, the affordability of the food, the possibility of eating strawberries in December, which, you know, even in the most picturesque of European towns in, I don't know, the south of France, that's going to be naturally appealing to anyone. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I'm trying to emphasize in the book is that this these kinds of questions aren't just about individual consumers. I think that a lot of our current day discourse uh, really focuses on individual consumers as if it's your moral obligation to shop at the most local peasant run, you know, only brown food selling store that you can find, which then takes all the blame away from government policies that structure the choices that you can make. Uh, takes all the blame away from business and economic structures that shape the possibility of choices that you can make. So for me, I think the, the discussion just needs to be moving beyond what individual consumers might be blamed for doing or not doing and really thinking more about the broader structures in which we operate. It's a great point. I mean, the, those of us who uh, buy uh, a bag of, uh, you know, six or seven heirloom apples and congratulate ourselves that we've picked the right winner. You know, well, I mean, government has picked a much bigger winner at, a, at a, an enormous scale or a much bigger set of winners at an enormous scale. And it's a scale that won't really be disrupted terribly by me and people like me going to farmers markets. That, that's sort of what you're saying here, right? It is, although I'm by no means saying that people shouldn't go to farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. I just I went to my, what they call an allotment. I live in the U.K. here, so I went to my allotment this morning and picked a bunch of apples. So, <laughs> you know, I, I try to do the right thing, and I think other people should try to do the right thing as well. But I also don't think it should be a moral judgment against people for going to a Walmart to buy their apples there. Right. The question should be about how can we exercise our, our power as consumers, as voters, as, you know, residents of this economic world in which we live to make things better. Um, on that note, we're going to say farewell, uh, and the supermarket doors are going to slide closed behind Shane Hamilton, who's the author of Supermarket USA, Food and Power in the Cold War Farms Race. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I'm all lost in the